Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. This is Religion Today with Martin Tanner, a weekly look at religion and spirituality here at home and around the world. Now, here's your host, Martin Tanner. Welcome. This is Religion Today. I'm your host, Martin Tanner. Today, we're going to take a look at some New Testament verses that are often misunderstood and are a little bit difficult to understand. Time permitting, we're going to also take a look at two of the most fascinating locations that are associated with the New Testament and some amazing manuscripts that you probably have not heard of. So here we go. Let's jump right in. In Christianity, one of the most read versions of the Bible is, of course, the King James Bible. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uses it with some modifications as their official version of the Bible. In the King James Version, the Valley of Hinnom appears 13 times in 11 different verses. In the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the authors talk about Jesus using the word Gehenna to describe the opposite to life in the kingdom of God. If you want to take a look at probably the earliest usage of that, go to Mark chapter 9 and start in verse 43. This word Gehenna is used 11 times in these synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Sometimes in the Christian Bible, it's also used in kind of an unusual way. Take a look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Gehenna is referred to as a place where both soul and body can be destroyed. Or, as other translations have it, both body and spirit can be destroyed in unquenchable fire, according to Mark chapter 9, verse 43. Now, that sounds a little bit odd to Latter-day Saints, who would think that the whole idea of the spirit being destroyed is not possible. Let's take a look at these verses a little bit more carefully, so that Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, that talks about body and soul being destroyed can be understood. Christian use of this word Gehenna pops up in a lot of places, and it's attributed to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, he says that whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty and go into Gehenna. That's a fairly literal translation of Matthew 5, 22. 
in Matthew 5.29, Jesus again says, It's better for you that one part of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 30, the very next verse, he says, It's better that one of the parts of your body perish than that your whole body goes into Gehenna. There are a number of different variations of this, and one of the more fascinating ones is in Matthew 23, verse 15, which says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you make one proselyte twice as much as a child of Gehenna as yourselves. He also associates in Matthew chapter 23, verse 33, the Pharisees with a brood of vipers. When he says, quote, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of Gehenna, close quote. So what does Gehenna mean? Well, it's usually translated as hell in English. And fascinatingly enough, the word hell is a Northern European word. It comes from a German Norse word that literally means a concealed place. The whole idea was that if you were a bad person, you would go to this place that's covered over or concealed out of which you could never come back. And it was a bad place, a place where the evil were taken. Some of the earliest uses of the word hell date from the early Norse, and then they go on into modern English in the 16th and 17th centuries where you get the all hell breaks loose, uh, hell in a handbasket, hell in high water, snowballs, chance, and those kinds of things. But hell is different from Gehenna. And what is going on here? What is the meaning of the word Gehenna? What's the purpose of it? Let's talk a bit about this, because this is just a fascinating um, point here. If, if you were to take a look at the whole idea of Gehenna, you would find that it refers to a place. And the place is not a location that is really far away. It is a place that is right next to Jerusalem. Gehenna was a small little valley, or maybe a gorge might be a more Western way of saying it, that was used from the earliest of times as a garbage dump. And it was a pretty horrible garbage dump. It was said that in Old Testament times that people actually sacrificed their children there to the God of Molech. In the times of the New Testament, it was literally a garbage dump, no longer a place of child sacrifice, but it was still a place that had a horrible reputation because there were fires that were burning down there and the stench would have been awful. Things were putrefying, going bad. And occasionally, young children were left there to die if they were unwanted. 
And so Jesus, as he is describing Gehenna, is describing a garbage dump. And what he is literally telling his listeners when he says, don't do bad things, don't do horrible things, or you're going to essentially go to a place like Gehenna, what, what he's really saying is, you're going to be worthless if you don't do good things. If you waste your life or do more bad than good, or if you are worthless to society, you will be as something that's counted as refuse or, or garbage. So he's not so much talking about a literal place that's awful and horrible as he is a plea to people to take their life and do something worthwhile with it. This is also, fascinatingly enough, in close concert with the ideas of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, because there are very few, only those who go to outer darkness, who don't find some degree of glory in the next life. Hence, what would be the LDS concept of hell or Hades? Well, there really isn't one other than perhaps outer darkness, and that is not for those other than the very worst who deny God at all costs. And after having known God, the description is that you, while you're seeing the sun shining, you have to deny that it's shining, that kind of a thing. So here we have a fascinating idea that Jesus isn't talking so much about a literal place called hell, but instead he is pleading with people to make your life useful and to help other people with your life. When we come back, more about some lesser known and perhaps less understood parts of the Bible and about locations that fascinate me, and I think you will find them fascinating as well. This is Religion Today. We'll be right back. Religion Today with Martin Tanner continues on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. We're back. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. We're back. We just finished up our discussion about Gehenna and what it really means. Now, on to a couple of fascinating monasteries that have some unique inferences for Latter-day Saints. Incidentally, if you have a question or comment about this program or any other, feel free to be in touch with me via email at martinstanner at gmail.com, martinstanner at gmail.com. If you were to go to the Holy Land, one of the most fascinating places that you might go to would be Mount Sinai. After all, who wouldn't want to see the place where, according to biblical text and tradition, Moses received the Ten Commandments? At the base of Mount Sinai is this fascinating place called St. Catherine's Monastery. It is a monastery that is 
run by the Eastern Orthodox Church of Sinai. It's kind of an offshoot of the Greek Orthodox faith, but it's, it's a little bit different. It's an independent faith. Now, listen to how old St. Catherine's Monastery is. It was established in 565 A.D. It is almost 1,500 years old. It's absolutely incredible. It's a World Heritage Site. It's absolutely amazing. If you take a look at some of the pictures and traditions uh, about it, it's, it's just an incredible place. One of the things that's fascinating about it also is some of the early Christian traditions that are described in it. Let me take just a minute to describe only one because that's all that time would permit. But before I describe that one, maybe I can mention that it's also, in addition to one of the oldest monasteries, it is the oldest continuously operating library in the world, and it has the second largest collection of early codices and manuscripts in the world. Only the Vatican Library has more. So St. Catherine's is an absolute treasure trove of early Christian documents. Now, to the particular work of art that I wanted to mention, and yes, this is a work of art. If you walked in to the main lobby or foyer, if you will, of St. Catherine's Monastery. One of the most exquisite works of art there is a painting done partially in pure gold, the background appears to be, and it's entitled Ladder of Divine Ascent. And it shows the monks who are there at St. Catherine's starting at the bottom of this ladder and climbing it up to the heavens. And at the top of this ladder, you have Jesus, the resurrected Jesus with his outstretched arm, grasping the hands of the monks as they come up the ladder and helping them into heaven. In the upper left-hand corner, you have saints and others who have apparently already entered heaven gazing on. And as those monks who are trying to climb the ladder to get to heaven are going rung by rung up the ladder, the devil and his angels with slinging arrows are shooting at a number of the monks and trying to knock them off the ladder so they will not get to heaven. The fascinating part of this is the title of the work and the fact that those who go into heaven seemingly will become by Jesus and are greeted by him at the end of this life and led into heaven at the top of the ladder of divine ascent. Those who are ascending the ladder become divine. That is its point. And that is a fascinating 
point for Latter-day Saints that those at that early, early monastery of St. Catherine's at the base of Mount Sinai also believe that in this life, we are rung by run, step by step, line upon line, precept upon precept, becoming divine. Now I'd like to talk for a minute about Marsaba, which you may or may not have heard. It is an incredibly old Greek Orthodox monastery. It's overlooking the Kidron Valley. It's about halfway between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. And it is fascinating because of some of the amazing manuscripts that are there. It dates to even earlier than St. Catherine's. Among the writings that were housed at Marsaba was one that was found by a Columbia professor by the name of Morton Smith. And he tracked down, as he was given authority to uh, do so in the late 1950s, a number of books which he cataloged for the monks and those who were living there at the monastery. And as part of that cataloging, he came across a partial letter that was apparently from Clement in Alexandria, who lived from the middle of the second century, just about a hundred years after the time of Jesus, until about 2012. And in this letter from Clement of Alexandria were quotations, because Clement of Alexandria is writing to try to dissuade some people who have misunderstandings about what Mark wrote. And he describes not just the general book of Mark, but this secret gospel of Mark, or maybe a sacred gospel of Mark. And inside this sacred or secret gospel of Mark, you have this fascinating description of Jesus raising a young man from the dead and then showing him the secrets of the kingdom when both are dressed in cloths of linen. And this particular description then breaks off at the end. In other words, that the ending of this secret gospel of Mark is lost. For a while, this secret gospel of Mark was thought to be genuine, and then a few people thought it was not true, mainly because they claimed no one had seen it other than Professor Morton Smith, but it turned out that a number of other scholars had and said that they had seen it and that they had found it in the exact place that Morton Smith had left it. And that has given credence to the idea that this secret gospel of Mark is indeed real. Now, some BYU professors have compared the secret gospel of Mark detail by detail with elements of the rites in the LDS temples. And that, to me, is fascinating because 
it gives credence to the idea that during the time of Christ, there were genuine rituals for those who were prepared and ready to live the gospel at its fullest to enter into special um, promises with God and obtain special knowledge. I hope you've enjoyed this. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.